I've had the privilege of being in and around banking for more than 50 years. Lots of changes during that time. We've gone from ledgers to laptops, typewriters to technology. One thing, however, remains the same. Banking is a people business, and I'll be talking with those people that make banking great here on Jack Rats with Modern Bankers. Welcome to Jack Rants with Modern Bankers, brought to you by RELPRO and Vertical IQ. Each week I feature top voices in financial services, from bankers and consultants to best-selling authors and many more. The goal of this program is simple, to provide insights, success practices, and to bring new ideas to the table that you can use to maximize your results. My guest today is Tom Morris. Tom is one of the world's top public philosophers and pioneering business thinkers. He's the author of 30 groundbreaking books, and he's a legendary speaker whose electrifying talks re-engage people around their deepest values, reignite their passions for work, life. He's on YouTube, and you gotta see this guy. He's absolutely amazing. He has too many degrees to mention, including a PhD from Yale. Tom's newest book is The Everyday Patriot, how to be a great American now. My friend Ned Miller introduced me to Tom and boy am I glad he did. It's a very fast paced conversation with Tom Morris, my guest today, and Jack Rance with Modern Bankers. Here we go. Well, I always like to start these programs and and, and my gosh, we could probably take the whole time and, and talk about this, but I like to start with tell me something good. What? Tell me something good, Tom. You know, a couple of things I learned from my father. Um, life is supposed to be a series of adventures. The one we're on now is preparing us for the next one, often in ways we can't even imagine. My dad lived that advice, and I could see it in his life. So I've been able to do things like, you know, switch from a business major to a philosophy major, switch from being a philosophy professor to being an independent philosopher, do things that nobody had done before because my dad's sense of adventure. A second thing is it came to me just the other day that existence is opportunity. Most people wait for some big opportunity to kind of smack them in the face, but just to be here, just to be in this world is an opportunity. There, there are things all around that we could be doing. We don't have to wait for that big thing to come and call our name. We can get involved in the small things that end up becoming big things. So just to be here is a wonderful opportunity. Oh, I I, I couldn't agree with you more. You you talked about moving majors from business to philosophy and then on to just an amazing career with 30 plus books. And we're going to talk about that. I'm curious though, as I was preparing for this interview, I got to know what is philosophy? <laughs> I like to take back people back to the root of the word itself, philosophia, love of wisdom. And I like to remind people that an object of love is an interesting thing. When you lack it, you pursue it. When you have it, you embrace it. So philosophy is just the pursuit and embracing of wisdom. And I used to define wisdom for people as just insight for living. Um, but I had a young guy visit me from Spain not too long ago. He read some of my books or heard about my work, and he wanted to have breakfast together. He's a college student from Madrid. And so we, we had breakfast together. We sit down in this little restaurant, 
And uh, his first question is not, you know, are the eggs good or how's the coffee? His first question is, what is wisdom? He says to me, as soon as he sits in the seat, let me ask, what is wisdom? And I said, you know what? I gave him an answer I'd never given anybody before. I said, wisdom is guidance and guardrails. For a hundred years, people have been trying to recover the guidance from the great thinkers, what we should do, what we should aim for, how we should live. But I've come to realize that the guardrails are just as important. And he said, wait, what are guardrails? You know, he's not a native English speaker. I said, you know, you're up in a mountains, you're driving along a mountain road. There's a metal uh, a guardrail aside the road to keep your car from going. Go, oh, guardrails. Yes. I said, there's cautionary wisdom as well as guidance wisdom. And I try to bring people both kinds. Uh, and that's what philosophy is all about. It's about pursuing and embracing guidance and guardrails for our lives and for our careers. The great philosophers had an amazing array of ideas for exactly what we're going through right now. Most people don't teach these ideas in university philosophy classes. I've had the joy to do so for about 40 years now and see how it makes a huge difference in people's lives. It makes a huge difference for businesses, even global businesses. So philosophy is a very good thing. Well, your teaching is different now because you're out and you've got you've got to see Tom's videos. They're engaging and absolutely wonderful. So your audiences now are very different than they were back at Notre Dame. I'm curious. Do you miss the classroom at Notre Dame or in the Ed being a university professor at all? I loved the students. I loved the experience. I had an eighth of the student body in my classes most years. I had these huge classes. I didn't have to grade papers. I had 12 teaching assistants to do all that kind of thing. I just had a lot of fun. The thing I've missed the most about that is uh, having 16 weeks to grow people in wisdom over time and to see the difference it makes. You know, so often since I left Notre Dame, 28 years ago or so, you know, I'll parachute into a convention center, give an hour talk to up to five or 10,000 people. There might be a few hundred in the room, might be several thousand. And I hope the ideas will take. I hope the ideas will last. I may not see that group of people again. Um, often I get a chance to. People invite me back over and over and over. So it's a little bit like the classroom experience. But at Notre Dame, it was guaranteed. I had 16 weeks. I could start small and grow big with a group of students. I love seeing that. But I haven't felt any pangs of missing it because that was a mission for me that was my adventure then. And then I had a sense of calling to a new mission, a new adventure. And I even wrote a long article in the Notre Dame paper saying to my students, look, I haven't found something more important than you guys. Nothing's more important than you guys. I've found something that you've prepared me to do in a unique way. So you and I get a chance to make a difference for businesses all over the world in groups of dozens and groups of thousands. Um, thank you for preparing me to do this. So it was just a, a wonderful way to be at a university. It was a wonderful way to leave my time there and hang out my shingle as an independent philosopher. Well, you you have made a difference. And, and you always talk about um, you know Aristotle and, and, and Seneca and uh, all those people in ancient times who were great philosophers, and you talk about making a difference. Who are some of the great philosophers making a difference today besides yourself? Yeah. Well, you know, you don't often hear their names because we have a very different culture now, right? It's more of a culture of entertainment. 
And while I try to make my public talks as entertaining as possible, I'm not doing the same thing as the movie stars, as the TV stars are, are doing. And so, nor are other philosophers. So we have some older women philosophers, like there's a woman named Martha Nussbaum. I've, I've been on NPR with her before. She's an amazing philosopher. But her books are published by the University of Chicago Press or other academic presses. And a lot of people uh, who just have a general interest in philosophy, they don't even know about Martha Nussbaum, but she's an amazing philosopher. I have young friends, Aaron Simmons at Furman University, who's just about to publish a book called Camping with Kierkegaard. He's an amazing young public philosopher starting to make a difference. I could, I could name probably a dozen other younger philosophers around the country who, sometimes sparked by my example, have realized they could leave the classroom, go out into the broader public and make a difference. It's just a great thing to see. Yeah. And, and one of the other great things to see for me was seeing you speak. <laughs> this is a book that I got from Tom, True Success. And the reason I'm holding it up is twofold. Number one, I'm so proud of it. And number two, we're going to talk about kind of an updated version of this in training that Tom's doing. But I saw you in 1995 or six. That's amazing. <clears throat> you signed the book. <laughs> Look at all the pages. I, this, you know, I go back to this book all the time. And one of the things I really like, and you mentioned Ms. Nussbaum, uh, is that you write so practically, and the titles of your book are just, you know, so amazing. So you write this book about the seven C's, yeah. and now you've got uh, a new class, <clears throat> I think in some ways, thanks to Ned, uh, yeah. around the seven C's. So talk about a couple of the seven C's. And how, how have they changed over the past 28 years since you wrote this book? Oh, yeah. You know, uh, the framework is very simple. Um, I was asked by a guy at the time who was an automobile dealer. He owned a big dealership uh, for uh, General Motors vehicles. He called me up one day and said, hey, we have motivational speakers every year at our Midwestern dealers meeting. And they all basically say the same thing. You know, set goals, aim high, you can do it. He said, there's got to be something deeper than this? Did did the great philosophers ever address success? And I said, well, it's not the kind of stuff I studied at Yale. Let me look into it. Maybe <laughs> there's something there. I was amazed. It was like opening the door to a treasure house. It, it was uh, the practical side of philosophy has been forgotten over the last 200 years. It was an amazing part of the philosophical endeavor in the ancient world and throughout the centuries. So I began developing a frameworks, finding an Eastern and Western philosophers Ideas like, first of all, in any challenge, with any opportunity, we need a clear conception of what we want to see happen, a vivid vision, a goal clearly imagined. Now, everybody talks about goal setting, but Aristotle talked about how important it is in human life. Uh, we need to have clarity about our goals. And in times that we're going through now, times of such great uncertainty, it's a challenge to people to have clarity in, in their goals. It's a process. Sometimes we start off in a new situation very confused, and confusion is nothing to be ashamed of or worried about. Sometimes it's the preliminary we have to go through to get to the clarity. It's almost like we have to sometimes walk through fog before the fog will burn off and the light will shine. So I try to help people in various ways understand how to do powerful goal setting. Um, some of the motivational speakers 20 years ago would talk about writing down your goals, and then they all come true as if writing was magical, you know. What's almost magical is the power of articulation, using the clear borders of language to clarify vague ideas in our own hearts and minds. 
vague thoughts can't motivate specific behavior. So I say to people, whether you write goals down or you talk them through with a family member or colleague, using the discipline of language to clarify your thinking can be such a powerful device. Uh, and so we talk about rooting goals in self-knowledge. We talk about all sorts of things that will help people not just set goals, but set the right goals, which is which is crucial. Now, as I said, the challenge since the pandemic, at least, has been uh, you never know what's going to happen next. So how do you set long-term and medium-term goals if the environment is shifting so fast? We, we talk about that. And that impinges on the second condition of the seven Cs, which is we need a strong confidence that we can attain the goal. But there are plenty of people who are big dreamers. They have big goals, but they don't have a lick of confidence that they can do it. So they never take action. William James, a great Harvard philosopher 150 years ago, studied championship athletes. And he said, you know what? There are all these different things we call sports, baseball, football, basketball, rowing, running, archery, tennis, mountain climbing. They all have champions. And yet there's such different activities. I wonder if despite all the differences in their activities, I wonder if there's a single set of qualities that all the champions share in common. Now, that was an interesting question to ask. He studied all the champions of his day, and he said, you know what? I think there's one thing they all share, and I don't even think we have a word for it in English. So he coined a phrase, precursive faith. Precursive, cursive to run, pre ahead of, faith that runs ahead of the evidence. He said every champion is regularly challenged to do something they've never done before. Climb a new mountain, break a new world's record, wrestle a new opponent. If they just look in their past history of accomplishments and ask the question, do I have evidence sufficient to prove I can do this? The answer is always going to be no. But the champions are the people who don't let that hold them back. They run ahead of the evidence with confidence, with faith. And so we talk about that and how difficult confidence is in the kaleidoscope environment we're in right now. What's going to happen next with the economy? What's going to happen next with politics? What's going to happen when the next virus rolls around? What's going to happen in a different part of the world? How about Ukraine and Russia? Where is that going to lead? What about China? We live in such amazingly chaotic times. What people forget is that those are the times of churn that produce new opportunities constantly. And if we're just looking at the challenges, but not seeing them as opportunities, we're missing half the picture. So we talk about that. And so you're right, the training program that Ned helped me uh, create, we have eight weeks on the seven C's. Now you might say, well, why not seven? Uh, the first week is to introduce the whole framework and set it up. And then each seven uh, of the seven subsequent weeks, we go through clear conception, strong confidence, uh, focused concentration, uh, stubborn consistency. We go through all this framework and we talk about what the great philosophers have said. And we talk about the challenge of implementing these things in, 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 our, in our time. And since we've begun to roll out this, once a week, people get a four minute video. Uh, once a week, people get a short email with some questions. The response has been really extraordinary. Some people have said this has been life-changing for me as a person, for my business. Um, our first client was a, was a bank, a small group of bankers. Uh, we've had another client recently in financial services, a guy who serves very high net worth individuals, people who've started hedge funds, who, who run major companies. And uh, he said he's never had such feedback uh, from any, it was his Christmas gift or his New Year's gift to his, his high-end clients. And he thought, he was a little bit worried, well, these are already mega successful people. What are they going to think about a philosopher talking to him about success? 
Well, I was helping them to understand conceptually what they've been doing intuitively their whole lives, but maybe couldn't teach their direct reports because they didn't have the right words. Well, we find the right words and we find all the implication uh, implications of those words in the implementation tricks and techniques and people come alive. It's a great thing to see. And I'm going to, before we end, I want to make sure that you, that people know how to get to your, your program, et cetera. And when you talk about confidence, it was interesting. I was watching recently the Canadian Open. Oh, yeah. No Canadian golfer had won the Canadian Open, uh, the RBC Canadian Open, to give full credit to the bank that sponsored it, uh, since 1954. Wow. So now they're in a playoff. Uh, uh, the English uh, uh, gentleman and uh, this Canadian. And he's got a 72-foot eagle putt to win. If I'm on the green 72 feet away, I just want to get down in four. He had the confidence. He knew. He believed that that putt was going in. And it did. And he won the, uh, he won the tournament. You can't do anything in athletics or business or your personal life if you don't have that level of, uh, a level of confidence. So I, I love hearing you say that. Yeah. You have, when you write books... Your I mean, true success, that's a pretty normal title. But now, Tom, you go into things like if, if Harry Potter ran General Motors, if, uh, if Aristotle ran uh, General, uh, or, uh, if Harry Potter ran General Electric, if Aristotle ran General Motors, fascinating. And now you've got a fairly recent book called um, Socrates in Silicon Valley about Steve Jobs. Yeah. You know, there have been a lot of books written about Steve Jobs. Why did you pick him as a title? And talk a little bit about that book. Oh, yeah. You know, well, first of all, background on the titles. I can't take all the credit because if Aristotle ran General Motors, I sent the original manuscript to a hospital president whose work had been written up in the Wall Street Journal in many places for innovation in healthcare. And he was a guy I really admired. And he read the book in manuscript form before it was published. He said, I love this book. This is one of my favorite books I've ever read in my life. But your title is totally boring. The title was Reinventing Corporate Spirit. And it was in a period of time where everybody was talking about reinventing this, reinventing that. But everybody was talking about product quality or process efficiency. Nobody was talking about the spirit of the people who do the work. So my book was about reinventing corporate spirit. And he said, it's a boring title. I said, well, I thought it was a good title. He said, you need something snappier. You need something like maybe if Aristotle ran General Motors. Really? <laughs> and I said, bingo. <laughs> uh, his name is Phil Newbold. He's, he's retired now, and he's still making a huge difference in, in the healthcare community nationwide and, gl and globally. But then more CEOs have told me they have that book in their office and they saw the title and they had to get it just because of the title. So when Doubleday wanted me to write this, this I had a book about Harry Potter called Harry Potter and the Meaning of Life. But Doubleday said, we've always admired your book, If Aristotle Ran General Motors. We want to do a book like that with you. Could you call your book If Harry Potter Ran and then pick a company? And so I researched all the companies at the time and picked uh, General Electric. And uh, so there you have it. But the Steve Jobs book, I had spoken for a company on true success for their global leadership team. The next year, they asked me back to speak on if Aristotle ran General Motors. The next year, they asked me back to speak on how to deal with disruptive change, which became the book Plato's Lemonade Stand, another interesting title. The next year, as if they hadn't had enough philosophy at this point, right? Uh, 
The next year they called me and they said, the CEO said, we're reading this new biography of Steve Jobs, uh, this huge biography. And he was the biggest jerk in the history of the world, but he created the world's most valuable company. How is that possible? You know, Isaacson doesn't explain it in his book. Could you come and give us a talk on how that could possibly be? Give us a talk on Steve Jobs. And rather than saying, I know nothing about Steve Jobs, I did what I've always do. Uh, the, the first uh, group that asked me to um, speak on change was a bank. And they called me and said, look, we're being bought by Bank of America. And everybody's worried about the transition because we don't know if we're all going to have a job because it was a credit card issuing bank and they already have a big credit card division. And uh, could you, could you, everybody's morale is low. Could you give us a talk on how to deal with difficult change? And rather than say, well, I know nothing about that. I said, okay, let me look into it. With Steve Jobs, I said the same thing. Okay, let me look into it. That car dealer. Okay, let me look into it. So people come to me with a, a need and I'll say, huh, okay, let me, let me look and see if I can come up with something. And I'm shocked. Before I knew it, I was spending a Sunday afternoon on the phone with the first guy Steve Jobs ever sold a computer to. Before I knew it, I was having coffee over and over with one of his direct reports that he drove around with for six years and had dinners with and, and they shared family stuff together. And this guy shared with me faxes from Steve that, Isaacson never saw. None of the biographers have ever seen. And so I was able to get a picture of Steve Jobs. Yeah, he had problems. He had emotional problems. He had psychological problems. He had all kinds of difficulties, but he had an amazing philosophy of leadership. And that propelled him beyond all the problems. And once talking to his direct report, I said, uh, people are, are trying to imitate Steve you know, wearing the black mock turtlenecks, wearing the jeans, wearing the white New Balance shoes. He said, yeah, people are trying to imitate the behavior too, you know, yelling at people in public hallways and all that. And he said, some people think that made him successful. He said, I think he could have been a lot more successful without that stuff. It's the stuff he did do right that made him successful. And that's the stuff I try to talk about it in the book. So the book has got new stuff in it that nobody's ever seen before. The book has got stuff about Steve Jobs that anybody can apply, whether they're running, they don't have to be in the tech world. They can be running an old school grocery store, mom and pop shop, or they could just be you know, running their own lives. Well, wanting to do better. Steve's got had some amazing ideas. That's crazy. Yeah. So uh, someone writes, uh, moving with from uh, difficulty to wisdom, uh, let me re read the quote, moving with wisdom from difficulty to delight in everything we do. Gosh, that's a great line. I'll bet that came from Plato's Lemonade Stand, a book you wrote in 2019. Yeah. Yeah. You talked a little bit about that. Give us a sense of that book. Yeah, that book, uh, actually, I wrote it over 15 years. It had 25 versions. It was turned down 44 times, and it's, oh. I think, my best book yet. Um, and it had six different titles, some boring ones before I got to the good one, right? And I remember as a kid hearing people say to me a hundred times as I grew up, Tommy, when life hands you lemons, make lemonade. You know, Tommy, life is handing you lemons right now. All you got to do is make lemonade. Everybody said it, but nobody ever said how. So when this bank I mentioned had asked me to give a talk on difficult change, I thought, huh, I remember this lemons to lemonade thing. Could that be of help? 
Can I dive into what the great thinkers had to say about that? Because, Jack, it suddenly occurred to me, there are two things we've been talking about. When we talk about difficult change or uncertainty, um, we talk about, first of all, resilience. When something bad happens, bounce back. Very important. We talk about grit for the last 10 years or so. When things are tough, you know, persevere, soldier on. Also very important. But the lemons to lemonade advice is not about bouncing back. It's not about soldiering on. It's about turning difficulty into delight, the opposite. I said, okay, there's some, there's some magic here if I can find it. All right, is there a basis for this image in the great thinkers? And it turns out, yes, there are amazingly powerful ideas for basically spinning gold out of whatever is thrown in your direction. In fact, one of the uh, Stoics, I think it was uh, Seneca, who once said, uh, disaster is virtue's opportunity. Hmm. I mean, what a perspective, right? No matter what the world throws at me, I'm going to make of it something good. It's not just like, I'm going to survive this. I'm going to try my best to survive this. We're not going to let this take us down. It's way beyond that. We're going to use this in a creative way we're going to be alchemists. We're going to be transformative with this challenge, with this difficulty that suddenly faced us. And I saw companies do that during the pandemic, right? We all did. Technology and the use of technology that was probably five or 10 years away got picked up in six months. It was an exciting time working from home that who knows when that would have ever been a thing. All of a sudden, we see how productive some people can be in that sort of scenario. So the lemons to lemonade, the difficulty to delight, if we have the right wisdom, we can be transformative. But then the real surprise is we can be transformed ourselves. Yeah, and and you talk about challenge and opportunity transformation. So we've got this little experiment that's been going on for about 250 years here in the United States of America. Um, and it's a, it's a work in progress. It's never perfect. Yeah. July 4th of 2022, yeah. you wrote, you, a new book came out called The Everyday Patriot. Uh, I'm eager to read this book. I got to send you a copy of this right away. I want to see it. I pre And another signature would be terrific. Yeah, we'll do that. We'll do that. But tell, talk about that new book. It's been a year. Uh -huh. uh, tell us a little bit about that one. Oh, it was the most unexpected project I've ever done. And you, you can get a feel already for how unexpected some of my projects have been. Somebody just asked me a question and I said, huh, I never thought about that before. Let me look into it. But this one. The famous TV producer, Norman Lear, all in the family, Sanford and Sons and Jefferson's, you know, movies like uh, Fried Green Tomatoes and uh, This is Spinal Tap and uh, Princess Bride, my family's favorite movie he produced. He calls me up one day. We had known each other for years since I was 39 and he was 69. He just turned 100 this past summer. Um, he called me up one day and said, hey, Tom, I just bought a copy of the Declaration of Independence. Cost me $8 million. I said, why, why, what? I said, Norman, you overpaid. I got mine for $4.95 at Barnes & Noble. He said, hey, you're real funny. He said, um, a guy bought a, a painting at a yard sale, a bad painting. He didn't like the painting, but he liked the frame. And painting at home that needed a new frame. So he takes it home. He starts taking it apart to put his picture in it. And there's something tucked behind the, the, the painting, folded up something. And he pulls it out. It's an original 
July 4th, 1776, Dunlap broadside printing of the Declaration of Independence, first printing, 200 copies to be taken to the, throughout the colonies and read aloud in public places so people could know what was going on. We knew that 22 or 23 of these already existed. They were in museums. This is the new, was the new discovery. And he said, I'm calling you because, you know, I've, I've bought it, not to put it in my house, but to send it around the country so that people who don't live in a big city can see America's birth certificate and read about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Maybe you could travel with the Declaration and give a, a really stem-winding speech every time we present it to people. Um, maybe you could write something about it. And I said, well, yeah, boy, that sounds great. You know, I'll, let me go reread the Declaration and then we'll talk more about it. So he calls me three weeks later. I had to turn the Declaration project over to a team because I'm doing a bunch of new shows. And um, word got out in Hollywood. I was trying to keep it a secret, but word got out in Hollywood. Now all the Oscar winners want to travel with the decoration. And my team comes to me and says, Norman, who's going to draw the crowd? Your friend, the philosophy professor, or Denzel and Jennifer Aniston and Brad Pitt or whoever. You know? so he said, you may be able to stay home after all. And I said, that's fine with me. Why don't I write this up into a little book? And it can it can travel with the decoration. He said, that sounds like a great idea. So it became an early version of this book, uh, written us several years ago when we were in a different time in America. A friend recently who had bought 3,000 copies of the original version of The Everyday Patriot. I had uh, breakfast with him a year ago, and he said, uh, why not rethink your little book, The Everyday Patriot, for this time we're in now? When you wrote it, foreign terrorism was a big challenge to America. Now, it's very different. We have all kinds of domestic challenges. And he said, I think the message of your book will never go out of style. But you can use new examples. You can make new points. I said, I'm going to look into that. That's a good idea. And I did. Boom. The new version came out uh, a, a year ago, taking people back to the founders' values, what they had in mind for this country, and then to the philosophers they were drawing on, Plato and Aristotle and John Locke and other great philosophers of the past who can give us a totally new version of what patriotism is supposed to be. Citizenship is not just a legal status. It's a moral calling. Patriotism is not adversarial. It's a love for country. It's a love for neighborhood, for town, for state. Try to make your immediate environment as beautiful and strong and powerful as it can be in every positive way. And then offer your neighborhood to the city. Offer your city to the state. Offer a beautifully functioning state to the nation and a great nation to the world. The Stoics had a principle of concentric circles. Get your heart and mind right first, then get your household right, then get your neighborhood right, then and build out. Each circle should contribute to the next one out and every outer circle should reach back and support the inner circles. It's a beautiful image. And I even use images like grow your garden. Okay, we don't find gardeners fighting with each other. You like potatoes, I like tomatoes. Will you grow yours? I'll grow mine. Let's try to provide an abundance for everybody. Let's try to find the values we do have in common beneath all our differences, and let's move forward with those. And the book has been just an, an amazing experience for me to visit book clubs, uh, have Zoom sessions this week with veterans in Pennsylvania. It was an amazing, amazing response to the little book, The Everyday Patriot. So yeah, I'm so glad that people ask me wild things because then I have a new adventure. That's great. That's just wonderful. <laughs> and you're open to it. We're, uh, my wife and I <clears throat> in our neighborhood are called the Quirkies. 
because when we take our dog for a walk, we take a, a bag and a little picker upper and we pick up trash, uh, yeah. bottles, cans, things like that. Yeah. If we believe that global warming is happening, which of course it is, yeah. how do I affect it? Well, I affect it by picking up that bottle. I've got a guy, a buddy of mine that plays golf with me and he actually will go now. He It's partially because he's all over the course, but he looks for trash to pick up. That's yeah. the control. That's where you talked about the concentric circles and yeah. and where yeah. it all it, and where it all starts. Well, I I'm looking forward to getting the book. Everybody should buy it. Now, before I let you go, I would be remiss if I didn't ask a college professor, an eminent college professor, uh, a well-respected author, about what's going on in college. Uh, I, you know, you read about the expense of college, uh, the viability of college, it's all over the place. Where are we with college, Tom? Well, the good news is when everything's a mess, healthcare is kind of a mess, for example, college, university education is kind of a mess, for an example. When we've got such a mess going on and we can name other sectors that are a real mess right now. It's nothing but a huge opportunity for those of us who want to do some good, right? Uh, Maureen Dowd wrote an article, an op-ed a couple of weeks ago in the New York Times where she said, well, at a time when, when schools are shutting down the reading of books like Frankenstein, we got our tech guys out there ready to create Frankensteins in the world. She said, we need to prepare people with the humanities for what we're going to face in the sciences and in politics and in all other ways. And, uh, I shot her a note right after reading her op-ed. I said, Maureen, what a great article. I just finished writing a book that took me 20 years. We're showing it around to publishers right now. It's called The Frankenstein Factor, subtitled Monster Success and Massive Failure. Hmm. It's a study about how smart and talented people can have a huge success that goes terribly, terribly wrong and ends up being a real disaster. We don't want that to happen with AI. And how can we diagnose what literature has told us before? Well, the colleges, if if I can help call the colleges back to the importance of the humanities, not just philosophy, but in the new book, I look at the most ancient human tale, Gilgamesh, written about a king who was a bad leader who becomes a good leader in 2700 B.C., then I use stories like the Iliad and the Odyssey, the Aeneid, the plays of Sophocles, Beowulf, Moby Dick, Don Quixote. Throughout history, Mary's two books, uh, she wrote many books, but Mary Shelley wrote the, the book Frankenstein when she was 18 years old. That's probably the greatest cautionary tale on success ever written. You know, Don't chase the wrong things, um, because if you succeed, you may have created a huge problem for yourself. Boy, think about that with Sam Bankman-Fried and, and cryptocurrency exchanges and all. It's We're surrounded by this, right? Um, what we've got to do is use the wisdom that's come before. Now, Mary wrote a second book that nobody knows about. Everybody's heard of Frankenstein. Second book, 1826, I think it came out, was about a pandemic in the 21st century that kills everybody. <laughs> they talk about a prescient author. So this book is not about epidemiology. It's not about virology. It ends up being about the same personality traits she saw in Victor Frankenstein, a grandiosity of ambition. Uh, uh, his, his motives, his means, and his methods took him down. And we see that all around us in the world today, how people responded to the pandemic, some political leaders around the world did it right. 
others made a mess. And it was motives, means, and methods. So in the book, whether we're talking about launching monsters in our own lives, in our personal lives, or whether we're talking about something on the, the level of AI, we don't want our hardest work and greatest goals to launch into the world's monsters we can't control. And so the, the, the new book is about that. Now, in answer to your question, that kind of shows you the resources I think colleges have for preparing us for the future, for preparing, preparing young people for the future. And some colleges are doing it right. I see in my old alma mater, uh, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, amazing students studying just the right things, preparing them well. Now, I went to school on a scholarship. I came from a poor background, didn't have money for college. I was given a Moorhead scholarship. Now, Moorhead came. We have graduates, Moorhead Canes, all over the world now, over 3,000 of us. Uh, the governor of North Carolina is a Moorhead Cane. The producer of All Creatures Great and Small is a Moorhead Cane. We have this amazing scholarship family out there. And we get together every three years to encourage each other, inspire each other. Uh, but they come from all over the world back to Chapel Hill. And we get to meet the undergraduates who are now on their scholarship, having their scholarships. These young people are the most amazing I have ever seen. So despite all the bad news about colleges and universities, there are places still where people are being trained in all the skills and all the wisdom they need for the challenges yet to come. And somebody asked me yesterday, how can we get your book, The Everyday Patriot, into more schools? Mm. And I said, given what I hear about the schools these days, they've got more empty shelf space in their libraries than ever before. So maybe I can send them a lot of philosophy books. <laughs> Fascinating. And in that same article, it was interesting. Uh, what Maureen Dowd talked about was, I believe it's in the English major at Harvard, they're doing away with poetry. There are some colleges doing away with English majors and philosophy majors, etc. You know, everybody can't be a, a plumber, everybody can't be a golf professional or a banker or a doctor. Right. Right. There are people who will need to teach. Uh, where you started out. And those kind of majors are really important for some people. You know, it's an unfortunate uh, application of very narrow marketing principles. Uh, the colleges are saying, what are people asking for? What are our customers asking for? Let's just give them that. Steve Jobs said, I never asked my customers what they want. You know, Henry Ford said, if I'd asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. You know, uh, he said, I, I try to give them what they haven't even imagined yet. You know, you ask them what they want, they're going to tell you what's on their minds. But what I want to do is I want to take them to the next level. So he didn't, he didn't believe in focus groups. He didn't believe in that kind of thing. The universities are going down the wrong path. They need to follow good old Steve Jobs and, and give people what they're going to need in the future, what they're going to wish they had in the future if they're at the wrong, if they went to the wrong place for school. Give them that now. Be the school that does provide that. It's a wonderful opportunity. Don't go marketing in the wrong way. Oh, what do you want? A business major. Okay, let's devote all our resources to business majors. Some of the most successful people in business I've ever known were English majors or philosophy majors or classics majors, for crying out loud. Uh, it deepened them. It broadened them. It helped them become better, more interesting people. And that helped them in whatever job they went into. Fascinating. Well, this this time has just gone like like <laughs> Ned said. He said it, it's a lightning bolt, uh, and I've I've really enjoyed it. We could talk a long time more, but I I, I got to ask. You've written I think thirty plus books yeah. now. Yeah. Um, you have got to always have in your head 
the next one. What oh, do you yeah. think? Oh, yeah. I was supposed to be writing right now uh, a, a book I was just asked to give a talk on. <clears throat> uh, it's going to be called The Gift of Uncertainty. And it's aligned with Plato's Lemonade Stand, but a lot of new stuff about uncertainty in, in particular. Um, how it can be a positive in our lives. Nobody's covering that sufficiently in, in the business world right now or in any sector of, of our cultural life. There's some great wisdom about how to spin uncertainty into something amazing. So, so that's the next book I'll start writing in September, I hope. The one I'm writing right now was unexpected. Uh, I was approached in 1998 to write Philosophy for Dummies, the big yellow books. Uh, their editor uh, called me and said, I heard you give a speech to 2,500 drugstore executives last week in Boca Raton or Palm Beach, or it was Palm Beach at the Breakers Hotel. My boyfriend's executive vice president of CVS, and he invited me to sit in. I'm the main dummies editor. You've got to write philosophy for dummies. I said, but y'all do gardening books and cooking books. <laughs> and you don't do that. And she said, we're going to launch Lifetime Learning. We've already asked the curator of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Thomas Hoving, to write art for dummies, and he's agreed. So if you will agree to do philosophy for dummies, you and Hoving will launch our new lifetime learning endeavor. So I did that back in 1998. It came out in 99. They called me in January and said, there's an ancient philosophy that's popular everywhere now in business, entertainment, sports, uh, uh, the military, stoicism, ancient stoicism. Would you write between now and September? stoicism for dummies and i said okay <laughs> so i'm in the middle of that right now but i finished this book the frankenstein factor i have another book beyond that that i've already finished that took me 30 years to write uh, so i have two completed books i'm writing stoicism getting ready to write uh, the gift of uncertainty and beyond that i've got a couple of ideas already jesus how do you find the time to do all this, Tom? You're on the road constantly. Uh, well, you know, my wife says, I, you know, I'm just the kind of person who can't shut up. So it's, I wrote my first book when I was 22 years old, not knowing any better. It was rejected 36 times. And so good thing I hung in there because number 37, the publisher said, okay, we're going to do this. I said, really? Um, so yeah, it's, uh, I'm not as, I'm not traveling as much now. I was used to be on 400, 500 airplanes a year. It's crazy. Yeah. Well, that's okay when you're in your 40s, you know, but I'm 71 now. And now that we have this beautiful thing of Zoom meetings and other virtual platforms, I try to divide things out in a sensible way so that I'm not always away from home for two or three days just to give an hour talk. I'll say to my wife, I got to go upstairs and do a Zoom talk. I'll see you in an hour, you know. And so I have a lot more time to write. It's a wonderful thing because, again, I keep having ideas. And uh, who knows where all this is going to lead. Well, if somebody wants to get you on an airplane, on a Zoom call, or write one of your books, or read one of your books, uh, how do they get a hold of you, Tom? Well, there, there are two ways. One is uh, my website, Tom V, V is in Victor, my middle name, TomVMorris.com. Uh, there's a contact page. Or, and I keep holding on to this, people can't believe it, the world's oldest email address, TomVMorris at AOL. Dot com. I've actually been thanked in person by their chief information officer for keeping that address. I've got other email addresses too, but I like to give people that one just to keep a part of the past alive. Tom V. Morris at AOL.com. Have people shoot me a shoot me an email. We'll talk. I'd love to be of service to uh, anybody in your amazing sphere of influence, Jack. I know how many things I've heard such amazing things about you from Ned and from other people. 
Thank you for including me in this program you do in this podcast. And thank you for introducing me to your amazing circle. It's it's a real joy. No, thank you. A real privilege to have you on, Tom. Really appreciate it. Tom Morris, everybody. Thanks again. Okay, Tom, that was wow. That was, that was amazing. We could do this a thousand times a day. <laughs> uh, and I, and it, your, your energy is just unbelievable. And I'm, you know, you're 71, I'm 73. And, and when I get up in front of a classroom or get up in the morning, of course, it's a little different for me now because of, of what I'm going through, but it's like, this is a great day. This is going to be right. a great day. Absolutely. And people say, are you on drugs or something? No, I'm not on drugs. <laughs> well, in your case, you, your case, yes, I am, but there are that kind <laughs> <laughs> And I'm, 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 I'm taking in air and I'm above the grass and yeah. this is a hell of a life. It's, a, it's, it is. It is. And, and we get to this stage, we have a perspective that we never had before. We have a depth of experience and wisdom we never had before. It's not all cliches, because it's not, but it's not guaranteed. You can be a, a silly, stupid old person, but if you do it right, you have more to offer. Yeah. And it's like my friend uh, Norman, who's going to turn 101 on July. For, so ABC Television did a special, 100 Years of Norman Lear. It was a it was a two-hour special last August or something. And um, it was amazing. You know, there's Jimmy Kimmel, there's Tom Hanks, there are all these, Jennifer Aniston, all these famous people with Norman and giving testimonials to him and sitting around a big table and stuff. And it was from 9 to 11. And my wife and I go to bed earlier than that. And so we, but we turn off devices at about nine or nine 30, all electronics go off. So we watched the first half hour of Norman's thing live uh, and then turned it off and taped it to watch the next day. And the next day um, we were watching it and there he, there was Tom Hanks just did something and he was sitting at a table with, you know, a bunch of famous Oscar winners. And my wife says, wait a minute, the phone's ringing in the kitchen. We we're in the bedroom a short distance from the kitchen. And she said, wait, 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 just let me put on pause, see who's calling. Because people don't call the home line much. It's all cell phones. Yeah. And uh, she said, wait, 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 somebody's leaving a message. She said, it's Norman Lear. And so I jumped up from the bed. I ran into the kitchen, picked up the phone. <laughs> I said, Norman, we were just watching you on TV. We taped last night's show. We were watching the second half. And so we ended up having a 45-minute conversation. So here he is, his his ABC television has just aired 100 Years of Norman Lear the night before, and here he's got time to call me. Uh, we had this 45-minute conversation. Now he's 100 years old. It's like when I first met him when he was 69. It's like he's so lively. So you got to come and visit the new house. We sold the house in Brentwood. We're in Beverly Hills now. We kind of downsized. You know, come visit. And uh, it was like, really? Okay, that's a, that's a good sign. And, you know, like like all of us, he's been through tough times. He's been through challenges. Um, I, I, I've had friends in their 90s who were going strong. So, you know, we've got a lot to offer you and me still at this stage. So, we you do. know, we do. It's well, a great it, example it, to have guys farther down the road who are still doing it. It yeah. is. It is. And to do it well. I mean, I would rather live to 80 healthy than live to 90 and have 10 years of of anger or angst and yeah. pain. Yeah, and no, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, when I was talking to him on the phone uh, that day, uh, he had two or three new shows in development at the age of 100. That's great. That's just great. Well, Tom, thanks again for all of this. You've been so kind with your time and I appreciate it. And I'd love to get a copy of the book. Oh, uh, thanks. Yeah, well, you sent me, I didn't see it, I don't think until today, 
uh, at about the same time, I was getting ready for two podcasts. The other guy asked me for a copy of Everyday Patriot, and I realized I was out. I, I, I could I couldn't find, and then I found this days later. It's first edition, <laughs> but I've got twenty four arriving on Sunday, and okay. so if I can't find a second edition here, which I now see a second one that I didn't see before, if it's whenever I get a second edition. I want you to have the new version. So if these two aren't, this one's not, that one might be. Um, If I have to wait till Sunday, I'll send it right away as soon as it comes. Thank you so much, Tom. Really appreciate your time and all the best to you. Jack, thank you so much, man. Uh, I sure do appreciate it. And as people come to you with their philosophical worries, tell them, I know a guy. (laughs) (laughs) I will. Thanks again, Tom. See ya. See ya. Bye. Bye now. Thanks for listening to this episode of Jack Rants with Modern Bankers with my special guest, Tom Morris. This and every program is brought to you by our good friends at Vertical IQ and RelPro. Join us next time for more special guests bringing you marketing, sales and leadership insights and ideas that will provide your bank or credit union with that competitive edge you need to succeed. This LinkedIn live show is now also a podcast. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Jack Rants with Modern Bankers podcast and leave us a review. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and others. Visit our website, themodernbanker.com, for more information. And don't forget to sign up for that public library, themodernbanker.com slash public library, for all kinds of ebooks and webinars and podcast replays. You name it, it's there. And as I say at the end of every podcast and LinkedIn Live, make today and every day a great client day.